Before we get to today's show, just a quick reminder that you can get the most comprehensive digest of China-Africa news delivered daily to your email inbox. Try it out for three months for just $3 at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, a couple of weeks ago, we had a fascinating discussion with Jonathan Hillman from CSIS about his new book about the Belt and Road. And he said something very interesting in the, in, in the book that we unfortunately didn't have time to get to in our discussion. And he said, the flag follows trade. And that was a reference to the idea that as China becomes the preeminent global trading power around the, around the world, that military power will follow. And that has been a pattern in human history and great power history for centuries. And so we're, today we're going to be talking about the militarization or the weaponization of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, this is a very sensitive topic because the Chinese government has gone to great lengths avoid any connection between the BRI and its security objectives. It really is very sensitive about this. President Xi Jinping has repeatedly said that the BRI is solely about economic cooperation and development, and uh, in his words, untainted by military objectives. But not everybody is persuaded by that, and in part because you just have to look at the Chinese military budget and the expansion of the PLA over, say, the past 15, 20 years. Uh, let's take a look at some numbers here. China's actual defense spending has grown from about $37 billion in 1999 to an estimated $266 billion last year. Now, that is second only to the United States and really three times as much as Japan and South Korea combined. So think about this as well, that by next year, China will have rough, roughly 124 warships and submarines, which would be suitable for conducting blue water overseas missions. That would make China now one of the largest navies in the world. And it's about, and I th will confirm this with our guest today, I think the largest navy power in the world today in terms of numbers of ships. So it's very, very big and very powerful now. So the question now is, how is it going to use all that military and naval power? Now, in an address to the Central Party School, President Xi, he explicitly called for a stronger Belt and Road Initiative security system to protect China's overseas interests, personnel, and projects. And boy, do the Chinese have interests around the world. Uh, before the COVID-19 outbreak, and it's very important to mention that only because travel obviously has just fallen off a lot, but there were about 140 million Chinese citizens who traveled abroad every year. Now, that is a spectacular growth over, say, the past 10 years, up from a few million now up to over 100 million. And there are an estimated 40,000 Chinese businesses that have offices around the world. The Chinese overseas property and investments now total somewhere around $7 trillion. And the number of Chinese citizens living overseas has grown to five and a half million. So when we think about what President Xi was talking about in terms of protecting Chinese overseas interests, personnel, and projects, 
Cobus, there's a lot there to protect. And it's always been one of the questions for us, especially in the context of the new Djibouti military base, as to whether or not the Chinese would be able to leverage that base to do those types of interventions, which to date they haven't, but certainly the possibility is there. What do you think, Cobus? Yeah, definitely the possibility is there. It's, you know, you know what well, one can be happy about the BRI or unhappy about it, but one has to acknowledge that um, that it certainly is planning big and planning big for the future. You know, so the fact that um, that it, there's uh, not only a digital Silk Road, um, but also a BRI space information corridor and a health Silk Road, all kind of all, you know, involved kind of packaged into the 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 the, the basic BRI concept clearly seems to indicate that China's planning big, you know, kind of for the future. They, they, they're keeping everything in mind. Um, and so, you know, kind of reading more about, you know, kind of, for example, the interoperability of, of civilian infrastructure with possible military uses, that kind of, it, it, it makes pieces fall into place where you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is the kind of breadth of the planning that's involved. So that idea of the civil-military fusion is going to be the focus of our discussion today. And it was the basis of a new paper that came out from the Asia Society Policy Institute written by Danny Russell, who's the Vice President for International Security and Diplomacy. He wrote together with Blake Berger, a senior program officer there, Weaponizing the Belt and Road Initiative. Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and a very good morning to you in New York. Good morning, Eric. Uh, good morning, Kobus. Thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed your paper. It's really one of the first times that I've considered the security aspect of the Belt and Road the way you wrote it. Now, just to kind of put out as a disclaimer, the paper was really focused on the Belt and Road in the Indo-Pacific, the Asia-Pacific region, and not necessarily in Africa. So we're going to focus our discussion today on the trends that you see in the Indo-Pacific, but certainly there are aspects of what's happening here in Asia that are applicable not only in Africa, but other parts of the world. So I'll put that out as a little disclaimer. One of the questions that we've been asking all of our guests who come onto the show to talk about the BRI is to help start our conversation by trying to define what exactly it is, since there seems to be a lack of clarity on the issue. Now, this was something that you talked about in the paper, and you wrote, you said, although the importance of physical infrastructure cannot be overstated, the BRI is much more than a portfolio of terrestrial interests. So with that in mind, can you help us understand in your definition as to what you describe the Belt and Road Initiative to be? <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, I, I always begin by describing the Belt and Road as kind of a Rorschach uh, test, an inkblot test, because what people see in it often says a lot more about them than it does about the Belt and Road itself. You know, that said, the BRI is also uh, constantly evolving, and it's evolved based on a very mixed, sort of muddled uh, combination of factors. It's a uh, sort of a Chinese hot pot dish, and the recipe includes Chinese doctrine, ambition, fear, greed, commercial interest, strategy, opportunity, opportunism. Um, so there are a variety of motives driving Belt and Road projects. Sometimes they're contradictory, and we've seen different stakeholders sometimes working at cross purposes. But I think what's emerging is a multi-purpose platform, a BRI brand that links a lot of different streams under one rubric. Uh, Cobus um, elucidated some of them. You've got the Silk Road Economic Belt. You've got the Maritime Silk Road. You've got the Health Silk Road, the Green Belt and Road, and importantly, uh, the Digital 
Belt and Road and the Space Information Corridor. So it's definitely more than one belt and more than one road, um, or so it seems, because I think we're witnessing a gradual integration among the disparate BRI elements and, and actors and corridors. You know, you, you quoted from Xi Jinping's uh, speeches, he's a devout Marxist and he's a practicing Leninist. And he's called again and again for close coordination between the military struggle and the political and diplomatic, economic, cultural, legal tracks to foster a strategic environment that's conducive to China's rise. And I think that's precisely what BRI seeks to do, is to create an ecosystem, an environment that is uh, favorable to China's interests. You know, I don't want to make it sound like this is a fiendishly clever, uh, you know, Fu Manchu strategy by uh, Chinese masterminds. Um, a lot of this is uh, learning by doing. A lot of it is experimental, hit and miss, trial and error. And a lot of it is going wrong, frankly. Uh, and a lot more can go wrong uh, in the wake of, of COVID-19. But it's, it's definitely evolving in the direction of a uh, increasingly coherent, well-integrated platform for exercising influence. Early in, early in the days of the Belt and Road, shortly after it was coined, particularly when people were fixated on specific routes, um, there was also a lot of anxiety expressed, particularly, I think, in India, about this, the, the concept of a string of pearls, you know, this, as a set of naval bases essentially surrounding India. You make the point that it's, it's more useful to talk about um, strategic strong points, and particularly that, that it's, it, we should look less at, the, at naval bases and rather at at um, the kind of functionality of, of the ports being set up around the like along the Belt and Road routes. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that concept of strategic strong points. Right. Well, strategic strong points is the Chinese own uh, label that they attach to the uh, ports uh, that they have uh, built or that they control, particularly around along the uh, Indian Ocean. And they are strategic strong points versus naval bases, uh, both in, in reality, but also, uh, I think, for a number of reasons. So to take a step back, um, I had been hearing from not only Indian friends and, and former counterparts, but my former national security colleagues in Washington, uh, where I had worked, uh, but also in other capitals, this suspicion bordering on certainty that BRI is a kind of Trojan horse and surely uh, Beijing has military plans in mind for these, uh, these port projects and so on. But while there was a lot of accusations being leveled, there wasn't really much by way of evidence being offered. And for those reasons, my colleague and I decided that we were going to take a close look at the degree of military involvement and military utility of certain BRI projects, particularly the, the deep sea ports in strategic locations. And the fact that the Chinese government continued to insist that BRI is you know, purely an altruistic, uh, exclusively development, win-win uh, initiative wasn't 
terribly uh, wasn't terribly convincing. But and it's easy to understand why ports are so important to China. But what we found was really that the answer lies not in the search for evidence that China's building another Yokosuka or, or Subic Bay or Kamran Bay style large scale naval base, but instead in this concept of uh, military civilian fusion. Uh, then this dual use structure, and it's you know it's not merely a theory here. Uh, it's the law in China. Uh, it requires uh, commercial companies, state-owned enterprises or uh, private enterprises, uh, to build ports to naval specifications, for example. Uh, it ensures that the commercial activities serve military goals. Uh, it's a blurring, a deliberate blurring between the civilian and, and the military sectors. Um, and it mandates interoperability. It, the law gives the People's Liberation Army, uh, the PLA, the ability to commandeer civilian fleets, commandeer infrastructure. Um, so even though the port may be civilian, and the fact that it's operated by a Chinese state-owned enterprise in most cases is, is not trivial. But even though it's a civilian port, the docks are built to accommodate PLA naval vessels. And there are a lot of advantages that the PLA can derive from a strategic strong point, even if it is not a defensible uh, naval base, even if it uh, wouldn't survive in the event of uh, full-on armed conflict. So let me see if I understand the point that you're trying to make here. So the idea is that the Chinese will build ports around the world and infrastructure. And, and by the way, this also sounds a lot like the concerns that the United States government has about Huawei, where it has these dual uses or potentially these dual uses that it can be leveraged for security purposes, even though it's a civilian infrastructure project. If, if Maybe I'm going too far on that, but it does sound very similar in that. So let's kind of walk down the path a little bit more here. So the idea is that there's a conflict somewhere in the world where China's built a port. The idea is that if China needed to deploy the PLAN to, to go to that country, the ships could then presumably dock because they've already been built to spec to the PLA Navy's details, right? Is that is that what you're saying, is that it could be leveraged in the event of a conflict that's concerning for, say, U.S. stakeholders? Well, I'd make two different points. Um, one, certainly these ports, these strategic strong points, uh, enable the PLA Navy uh, to project power far beyond uh, China's near seas, its traditional area of, of national defense. Uh, that doesn't suggest that China's planning to wage uh, expeditionary wars uh, the way that the United States has in the last uh, few decades. Um, but it does enable uh, Chinese ships, both commercial and military, to have a safe harbor, uh, to be able to reprovision, to collect information and intelligence uh, about different parts of the world and about the operation of other uh, navies and so on. So there's a, a whole host of potential uh, benefits that foster the 
stated goal of of going out of expanding uh, China's ability to operate as a as a navy as a military in far seas uh, as well as in uh, near seas. Now it may well be that some of the concerns about whether it's the PLA Navy or, for that matter, uh, Chinese tech companies uh, are overstated. But that brings me to the second point, which is that it's really not about simply deploying China's military. Uh, It's about creating uh, points of leverage. It's about creating influence, creating dependencies, creating relationships. You could make the case that to some extent uh, China's taken a page out of uh, the book of, say, the United States in the 20th century, uh, or even imperialist powers like uh, Britain uh, in previous centuries. Um, You mentioned in your opening uh, this concept uh, that the flag is following trade, and that's very much what we are seeing in what I described as the weaponization of uh, the Belt and Road. I I deliberately didn't call it militarization because it's so much more than just uh, the military. And whether we're talking about the Space Information Corridor or the Digital Belt and Road, um, or whether we're talking about the Continental Maritime uh, Silk Roads, what we see is a uh, series of paths that allow China to expand its influence, to create uh, dependencies. Some of these dependencies are technological. Uh, some of them are economic. Some of them are financial. Uh, some of them are political. And frankly, increasingly, some of them are uh, military. Uh, we're seeing China begin Uh, replicating America's practice of military diplomacy, ship visits, hospital ships, uh, military-to-military exchanges, uh, foreign cadets in Chinese military academies, weapons sales, uh, that sort of thing. Um, But again, I'd emphasize that it's much broader than the activities of uh, the PLA. It's a a full-spectrum engagement of a nature that creates increased dependency on China and allows China uh, both to set rules and standards, uh, but also to leverage those advantages uh, to gain compliance on areas of of interest, China's so-called core interests. Over the years, we've spoken to many development experts who, who've been looking at um, China's development model, um, particularly in places like Ethiopia. Um, and you also write that China follows a, a, a port parks uh, city model, you know, which is essentially a, a port linked to a, a special economic zone um, and linked to you know, supportive industries and markets and so on in, in a nearby settlement. Um, what is the significance of this development model for in, in, in the larger scheme of, of this weaponization of the BRI? Well, I think that helps to illustrate the point I just made. The goal of the Port Park City model is to develop a larger integrated system uh, that, on the one hand, helps sustain the port. Uh, on the other hand, is, is sustained by the port in turn. Uh, and that integrates uh, the commercial, uh, the political, 
uh, the financial factors and frankly bolsters the military utility of the port by co-locating uh, support industries like shipbuilding, like bunkering, like communications, like transport logistics and so on. I think it goes well beyond port-specific uh, industries. So as you pointed out, it's a developmental model that uh, we've seen used in China again and again, where the port is embedded in an industrial park or a special economic zone with a cluster of industries. Um, that industrial park is, is further embedded in or is linked to a city with a larger population of workers with facilities, with land transportation routes. And so th this is an example of the uh, deliberate use of, of synergies, of the interconnectivity among the many different components of the Belt and Road. Moreover, uh, when you combine uh, a port park city with other Chinese initiatives like safe cities, where the Chinese are marketing a whole suite of surveillance technologies, or smart cities, where they're marketing a digital communication network and sensor technology and so on. I mean, it's clear that uh, these projects are creating multiple points of leverage, multiple opportunities uh, for China. And it reflects uh, not only the civil military fusion that I described, but it also reflects another uh, slogan, another point of doctrine on the Chinese part, which is civilian first, military later. Uh, so this is a phrase, this is a concept that uh, the Chinese use in their writings that uh, is pretty straightforward. Um, lay the groundwork for future military utilization of facilities, but do it without raising red flags. So th this is what uh, I certainly mean by saying that commerce uh, is leading the way uh, and the flag is following it. Uh, China reversed you know, the old 19th and 20th century sequence uh, its businesses are blazing a trail, and the Port Park City uh, development model is fostering this and leaving open the possibility that the PLA can follow. I imagine that your report was consumed in Washington with a lot of enthusiasm, in part because it validates a lot of the concerns that many American stakeholders, and not just Americans, but also out here in Asia, have about China's motivations. Uh, you use the word uh, Beijing's ulterior motives uh, is what you framed it as. And in one sense, you've talked about creating a kind of a Sinocentric world that has Chinese dependency, but at the same time is able to project Chinese power to protect all of those interests of their people, their businesses, and all that around the world. But I guess let me just play devil's advocate here. Isn't this kind of what China should be doing in one sense? Because if we look back at the past, say, I don't know, four or five hundred years of economic history that an imperial power like the British, like the Americans, and now the Chinese have become the largest economy in the world or are soon to become, they too will follow in that, my, that, that same role of protecting their interests and projecting power and making the world a safer place for them. 
So in some ways, if you're Chinese, this is what you would expect your government to be doing. So in that sense, I'd be interested to get your take on that in the sense that well, what they're doing is really just a natural continuation of great power behavior. Well, that's a great question, and it's a great point. Uh, and I think there's a lot of justice to the claim that China has very substantial, uh, rapidly growing and far-flung equities uh, that it needs to protect, that its population expects it to be able to uh, protect. And, and we should take as our starting point that uh, China has certainly the same right uh, as the United States or any other country uh, to build and deploy uh, a global capable blue water Navy. I think that is a critically important starting point. Um, it shouldn't, though, as sometimes happens uh, uh, with Chinese interlocutors, um, extend to provide cover to the claim that uh, China has the right to make the same mistakes and commit the same offenses that past uh, imperialist uh, nations have, have made. Uh, we're not in the 19th century. Uh, we're not even in the 20th century. And uh, there's every reason to, to advocate and to push for China to uh, exercise uh, its global prerogatives uh, in a responsible way, in a way that benefits uh, the world, not exclusively uh, China. So, uh, again, I said, I, one of the conclusions uh, that I reached are that the China hawks in uh, Washington and other capitals have uh, done themselves and the, the world a disservice by focusing excessively on the question of pure Chinese military power. Um, because the challenge that is posed to a rules-based order, uh, to an open, democratic, uh, values-based international system, is not primarily a military challenge. So the solution can't be primarily a military solution either. I think uh, democratic uh, states and partners uh, need to work hard, not just on a blocking strategy, uh, but to compete. I mean, the, there's a very basic principle at work here, which is you can't beat something with nothing. And the something that the West is going to need to beat is not you know, an exchange of naval artillery fire, not beating the PLA Navy per se. It's creating uh, viable alternatives to what China is offering, uh, both in terms of infrastructure, in terms of digital uh, technology, uh, in terms of institutional uh, collaboration. And the, uh, you know, the, the absence of the United States by and large uh, from the multilateral international platforms and in the region that I watch uh, closely, the Indo-Pacific, uh, withdrawal in, in diplomatic terms uh, has given uh, the Chinese a, a wide open field uh, to, to gain further advantage. So the question ultimately, Eric, I think is going to be twofold. Number one, 
uh, not what capabilities does China have, but what is it actually doing with them? And what are the mechanisms that we might have to uh, shape or limit or more positively influence that behavior? And secondly, uh, what sort of choices are we offering to developing countries, to, to countries that uh, don't want to simply say no uh, to the opportunity to uh, finance needed infrastructure projects that don't simply want to say no to uh, various things that China may be offering, whether it's in uh, terms of technology or in terms of developmental assistance, um, but would much prefer to have uh, more trusted partners and, and uh, safer options available. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. How are some of the other powers in the Indo-Pacific region, you know, looking at, at this? You know, obviously, we know that, that India and Japan are generally, you know, quite negative. Are there, are there kind of, uh, you know, kind of actors in that, in that community that's, that's kind of warmer towards the BRI? Or then how do, how do the other kind of member c- countries in the community balance the, the, you know, kind of the, the power of China with, with some of these other concerns? Well, when it comes to the national security concerns, I think clearly uh, India, uh, Japan, the United States, Australia, the so-called quad countries uh, are clearly uh, the most focused and the most uh, overtly concerned, at least on the security front. There are definitely uh, security concerns about China in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, and elsewhere um, beyond the Quad countries. And there are very specific concerns in, uh, in East Asia over things like uh, the South China Sea or uh, water access along the Mekong, for example. Uh, and more broadly, concerns about China's uh, growing influence and assertiveness, particularly against the backdrop of an uh, atrophying of uh, America's traditional presence uh, and engagement in the region. But, you know, beyond the four uh, so-called quad countries and perhaps some in Europe, uh, I don't really see much open discussion of the adverse national security implications of BRI itself. Now, there are many specific uh, concerns about BRI projects in individual countries uh, and their concerns at the governmental level, the national level, the provincial level, uh, and also uh, particularly within uh, civil society in these countries. Uh, on the security front, um, it's telling, I think, that governments like, say, Cambodia or Thailand, even Pakistan, are very quick to deny rumors in the press about um, possible plans for uh, Chinese military basing or uh, those sorts of activities. I think clearly there's some sensitivity there, um, but that 
that's largely for domestic political reasons. You see, even in countries like the Philippines, where the current national leadership is very accommodating towards Beijing, local politicians and much of civil society is, is quite vocal in uh, their concerns about Chinese investment or majority ownership in, in critical infrastructure in the country and, and the security risk uh, that that also poses. I'm wondering if you've received any reaction from Chinese stakeholders for your report. What did they have to say about it? Did you hear any, any feedback? So the Chinese language version of our report hasn't been uh, released yet. So I don't really have yet um, a full scope, full spectrum uh, response. I've gotten uh, some individual and preliminary uh, acknowledgments and, re- and early reactions, but we did we we did a report uh, last year uh, more broadly uh, called "Navigating the Belt and Road," where we analyzed the environmental, financial, labor, a whole host of problems with BRI projects. And for that, I got uh, extensive and very high level uh, responses and. What I heard again and again from uh, senior and official uh, Chinese sources was that they considered the report objective and constructive, even though it was quite critical in in places. Now, you know, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, security and military issues are are very very sensitive in China, and this sort of goes to the the tightrope that. Xi Jinping is trying to walk about the connection between development and security. But, you know, I was, I was favorably impressed by the willingness of Chinese uh, policymakers to accept uh, what they considered to be constructive uh, criticism. And look, I hope that they're going to find this report uh, to be you know, as objective and constructive as the previous one. Again, I, I think it's important that we ensure that the Chinese language uh, translation uh, is faithful to the original, which is why we're doing the translation ourselves, and we'll be working with Chinese uh, think tanks on a dissemination plan. But, you know, if nothing else, I think that we debunked the the claim coming from a lot of China hawks uh, in Washington and elsewhere that the BRI ports on the Indian Ocean are really, you know, secret naval bases, that these are Trojan horses. Uh, So at least on that score, I think the Chinese will find something they like in the report. But the report, this report, though, this year comes at a time when relations between the United States and China are significantly worse than they were even last year. And they're at the lowest point that they've been, say, since Nixon in 72. So do you think that the, the current moment that we're in right now and the tensions that, are, that exist between the U.S. and China will affect the interpretation of your report and how it's perceived, given that so much is now misperceived between these two powers? Yeah, what I've found is that that can cut uh, two ways. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, attitudes in China have uh, soured when it comes to the United States, and there's a growing conviction that the the suspicion that many in China long harbored that America was really uh, a sore loser and uh, saw the uh, sunset of its uh, great superpowers 
uh, and sought to block and contain China, uh, that perhaps that was true all along, that they saw in the Trump administration a kind of anti-China uh, bent that revealed the real face of the United States. There are plenty of people now in China, including in uh, high positions, who uh, seem to have come to that conclusion, unfortunately. However, the flip side of that, uh, Eric, is that uh, the Chinese have been subjected to such, uh, you know, pulpit-pounding denunciation, uh, such uh, hostile uh, rhetoric and abuse by senior U.S. officials that it's almost pathetic when uh, somebody like me, a former official, uh, comes up with uh, criticism that's actually fact-based and moreover adds to that um, some practical suggestions about how China could make an adjustment to improve the operation of the Belt and Road, uh, both to its benefit and to the benefit of the recipient countries and the global good, uh, that they are um, pretty enthusiastic uh, in welcoming that. Uh, so it's hard to say whether this uh, negative atmosphere uh, will either prevent our message from getting through or as a highlight against the backdrop of pretty toxic rhetoric, uh, appeal to the Chinese as uh, credible, uh, well-intended, uh, and objective. You, you suggest that, um, you know, that the response to the this kind of weaponization of the BRI can't be wholly military, and that the U.S. has to work with with a wide variety of partners to present a kind of a credible alternative to to the BRI, um, particularly to to developing countries. What do you think that alternative might look like? Like, what would be what would a, a kind of a credible, workable U.S. version of this kind of rollout look like? Well, I uh, wrote an afterward. Uh, to the paper specifically to uh, explore this uh, question set a bit. Uh, I don't think that it's practical or feasible, particularly given my own experience in the U.S. government, uh, for the United States to try to compete head-to-head, uh, -head, point point-to-point, project-to-project uh, with uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, China has uh, resources, it has some uh, geographic advantages, it has uh, a system that allows it to direct uh, not only state-owned enterprises, but also private companies in support of policy objectives in ways that the United States uh, simply doesn't have. So I think that the answer, uh, certainly the answer that I came up with is maybe the geopolitical equivalent of the doctor telling you to uh, get plenty of rest, get exercise, uh, drink a lot of water, and eat your vegetables. It's really a lot of common sense uh, that uh, the more the U.S. Uh, engages economically uh, with uh, developing countries, uh, the more that the United States uh, returns to the kind of uh, traditional funding of uh, international development, the more that the United States is seen as an active and constructive participant in uh, 
uh, regional and global uh, multilateral enterprises. Uh, the credibility of America's commitment to a rules-based order, to, to values, uh, to a consistent uh, set of standards uh, that it applies to itself as well as to others. Um, and the more that the United States engages diplomatically, uh, just think about how many vacant uh, ambassadorships uh, there are in U.S. embassies around the world. Uh, for the United States to get the balance right uh, between the different elements of national power, so not just deploy the Seventh Fleet in the Indo-Pacific uh, to deal with uh, a problem set, um, but also to use uh, economic, commercial, uh, technological, people-to-people, -people, educational exchange, soft power culture, uh, and good old uh, diplomacy. So a lot of this is common sense uh, work. It, it, I think, is uh, something that would be dramatically augmented by a collaborative approach, uh, one in which the organizing principle is not anti-China, but rather pro-value, pro-democracy, pro, -value, pro economic growth, pro-good uh, governance. And in that vein, not only are uh, there other important democracies uh, across the Pacific, across the Atlantic, and so on, not only are there strong institutions in the, in the region I look at, say, APAC, uh, for example, or, or ASEAN, uh, through which we can work and with whom we can partner. Um, but there are many countries that may not um, be uh, pristine democracies, uh, but that are uh, deeply concerned about uh, some of the, the practices uh, and the advantages that uh, China gains over them. Uh, who want to uh, collaborate in, in building uh, a region and building a global system that protects the rights of the small countries, the rights of the weaker countries. Um, and in the aftermath of World War II, that was a high priority for the United States. Uh, if we, as the U.S., in partnership with like-minded nations, rediscover our commitment to those principles, I think that that will put in, uh, Chinese initiatives like uh, the Belt and Road in uh, a context that gives countries the, uh, the right to make their own choices. And to the extent that developing countries can make uh, their choices uh, freely, we can count on them to be guided by self-interest. And self-interest will, uh, in most cases, take them in uh, the direction of a kind of uh, clean, uh, healthful, uh, environmentally aware, uh, and sustainable approach to uh, infrastructure. I mean, with all due respect, what you've outlined it makes a lot of sense to me. I find it eminently rational, but it seems wholly inconsistent with the worldview of 
your former colleagues in the United States government today who run the administration. And that is not how Mike Pompeo sees the world at all. Now, we don't know how long Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration is going to be in power, but the United States seems to, for at least the past four years, have shaken that rules-based order to its core. And I, and I wonder if the United States still has the credibility now to walk back in and say, you know what, about TPP, we were just kidding. About the World Health Organization, we were just kidding. About the Paris Climate Accords, we're just kidding. The sanctions threatened against Vietnam, we were just kidding. All of these things, the list is just endless. And I think this has given the Chinese an enormous opportunity to say, listen, the U.S. screwed you once, they're going to screw you again. We are going to be a reliable partner. We are the one defending the multilateral order, not the Americans. I'm just curious about how what you've been saying is, again, not the Mike Pompeo worldview. Well, you're not getting an argument uh, from me on that, Eric. Um, it's quite <laughs> yes. correct. And it wasn't intended for an <laughs> argument. It was just more of a surprise, you know. <laughs> but I, and I think that that goes uh, part of the way to explaining uh, the explosive growth and the success of uh, many of the Belt and Road elements over the past uh, several years. As I said, there's a lot more to BRI than just infrastructure. And there's a lot more than just BRI to China's strategy to extricate itself from the rules-based order, and in some cases to to loosen or to undermine that uh, order. And it is precisely because the United States is perceived as disengaging that China is able to co-opt uh, many regional and multilateral organizations uh, to use those platforms to accelerate the narrative that uh, you know, the U.S. alliance structure undercuts security, doesn't help it, that the U.S. is in decline and uh, that China is the only game in town. So, yeah, I think it's important uh, for there to be a shift in the uh, strategy of the United States um, and uh, to move towards an approach that is focused less, less on uh, lambasting China and trying to vilify uh, China, and one that's based more on making common cause and uh, sharing uh, a, a, a collective interest and pursuing that interest. You know, it's very telling. You mentioned uh, Secretary uh, Pompeo. He just made a trip to uh, the Maldives, to Sri Lanka, to Indonesia, in which he uh, railed against uh, China and uh, urged his host to denounce China as a predator and praise the United States as a partner. And what happened? In all three countries, the response was, no, we want uh, good and equidistant relations with both Beijing and uh, Washington. We are non-aligned. So the net effect of this kind of uh, ultra-nationalist uh, approach on steroids is to have essentially recreated, <laughs> resurrected the non-aligned movement. Like, that can't be the plan. But there's another dimension uh, to this, Eric, that I think we shouldn't neglect, which is that there's no inevitability of success in the Chinese gambit in this Chinese strategy. It's by no means a foregone conclusion 
that the kind of, of Beijing-centric, Sinocentric ecosystem that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is trying to develop is going to flourish, you know, particularly without a continuation of uh, the Trump administration's invaluable assistance. Look, Beijing can be its own worst enemy. And we've seen this again and again. We've seen it in, with the Wolf Warrior episodes. We've seen it with uh, the uh, face mask diplomacy that, that backfired. And, you know, I'd add, remember that, you know, the economy of China in 2020 uh, in the aftermath of COVID is, is, isn't growing at anything like uh, the rate it was at the time that uh, One Belt, One Road was christened by Xi Jinping in, in Kazakhstan. Double-digit growth is a thing in the past now. Uh, Beijing's treasury is, is really being stretched. Uh, there's a huge problem with, uh, with debt uh, default uh, and the inability of uh, host governments to service their, their debt. Uh, there's now criticism from within the Chinese population itself and within the, the growing middle class. The economy is suffering. The population feels the pinch. Citizens are increasingly turning their sights on these uh, overseas loss-making grand projects. And like middle classes throughout history all around the world are saying, why are you pouring my hard-earned tax dollar down a foreign rat hole when you could be building a school for my kid here at home? So, look, I mean, to me, speaking as a recovering U.S. policymaker, um, as I said, uh, you can't beat something with nothing. So the less that the United States and less that other like-minded countries have to offer, or the less available or the less credible what uh, they're offering appears to be, the more China becomes the only game in town. The paper is weaponizing the Belt and Road Initiative. It was written by Danny Russell, who's vice president for international security and diplomacy at the Asia Society Policy Institute. It's absolutely essential reading for anybody interested in the Belt and Road, not just in the Indo-Pacific, where Danny was focusing on, but also uh, worldwide and especially in Africa. Also, just want to give a shout out to Blake Berger, who's a senior program officer at the Asia Society Policy Institute and uh, a co-author of the report with you, Danny. So, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to join us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, are you on social media by any chance? I didn't see you on Twitter, but I just want to make sure we double check. Uh, yes. Uh, so both uh, Aspie and uh, myself as uh, Danny R. Russell can be found on Twitter. So Danny R. Russell, we'll put a link to to Danny's uh, Twitter feed, also to the paper and to the uh, Asia Society Policy Institute in the show notes. Danny, thank you again for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Eric and Kobus. I enjoyed it. Kobus, I'm so glad that we've had the chance to speak both with Danny and then also earlier with Jonathan Hillman uh, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies about his new book, in part because we're starting to develop a more nuanced understanding of the Belt and Road. And I think we have to move beyond the simplicity that we've had in the argument for the past five, six, seven years, really since the beginning of it. In the US and Europe, there's this talk about how the Belt and Road is a Trojan horse, it's taking over things, it's all these different things. Certainly the Chinese have this fantastical kind of, the Belt and Road is wonderful. Both sides are lacking, in my view, of what it is. And I like what Danny's approach was in part because he was much more, it wasn't 
you know, I don't want to say the word objective because it really didn't feel objective, but at the same sense, it felt balanced. It felt neutral in the sense. And it was really interesting how he brought a level of nuance to the, to the discussion that we haven't really talked about that much in terms of the security angle. Yeah, you know, kind of the, I, th- I think so much of this has to do with the fact that we still don't know what China is going to be like as, an, as a kind of a big world actor. You know, um, the, the Chinese, obviously, they, they, they're rapidly expanding their global presence and they, they're, um, you know, it, it seems to be pointing in, in, in a direction of a much kind of larger global role, but at the same time, they're really risk averse. Um, and so, you know, so as I think his his work kind of provides a glimpse into um, you know into what some of this might end up looking like. You know, depending on on how kind of you know relationships between global powers go in the future. I think that his essay is absolutely essential reading for anybody in this space. You really, I mean, it is so important because one of the things that the article does so well is it articulates how, again, this is the point that I've been trying to make, and I've been influenced by Danny's writing in this sense, that these are facts on the ground. These, this is, this, these are realities that we have to contend with. The fact is, the Belt and Road, whatever it is, and since we don't really have a good view on it, but it is a reality. There are trains, there are satellites, there are digital silk roads in terms of fiber optic backbones. All of this is coming together in some weird form. The fact is, yes, there is a security aspect to it. Of course, there would be a security aspect to it. And this was the question that I put to him. I think in many ways, China is doing what it should be doing in the sense that it is emerging as a global power. And this is what global powers do. The expectations of its people are to make sure that its investments, that its people and its interests are protected around the world. Uh, That is an objectionable concept for many people in the US and Europe, but that is to me a very natural statement for anybody who is in China, because that's what you would expect of your country to do that. I also believe that the Belt and Road is the manifestation of a country that is trying to create a world order that is more in line with its own interests. Again, that's what preeminent hegemonic powers do. There's nothing exceptional in that sense about what the Chinese are doing. The way that they are going about it is in fact distinct. And that's where I think, again, the book by Jonathan and this article by Danny is, to me, essential reading. Yeah, I agree. I think it also gives a glimpse into some of the African decision-making, or, or it makes it easier to infer what some of the African decision-making is around these issues. You know, because if, if one if one isn't Vietnam, for example, if you're not on the on on the border with China, um, you know, kind of, but you're a global South country quite far away from China. I can see how you know, kind of a lot of African leaders would be willing to to actually to take the, the kind of interoperability and the potential for for future Chinese military use of what's, what are now kind of, um, civilian infrastructure. I can see them kind of taking that in stride and being like, you know what, if, if, if in like 2035, you know, the, the, the People's Liberation Army Navy wants to, you know, kind of wants to dock at that port, that's okay. You know, because in the you know, in, because in the meanwhile we have a port. Um, you know, so so I can really see how how that actually wouldn't be such a big concern for them, or not nearly as big a concern as it would seem from from Washington D.C. And remember that quote that you mentioned in a previous show, and that I featured in the newsletter. That I forget who said it, but it was a great quote from an African finance stakeholder who said, uh, "Broadband are the new roads." 
And so while we may actually see a pullback in terms of Chinese spending on road infrastructure and rails and the traditional infrastructure that they've been spending for the past 15 years in Africa, uh, their digital infrastructure spending may actually go up quite a bit. It's lower cost, it's bigger impact, it helps Chinese interests, and it's something that Africa desperately needs. I saw a statistic today uh, that really highlights the need, and this is something missing in the debate, that uh, 58% of Nigerians uh, lack internet access on a regular basis. 58%. Now, again, I don't know if that's an accurate number, but I think in one way it really grounds you as to the need for connectivity that still remains in many parts of the continent. And China coming in with vast amounts of connectivity is something that I think will be well appreciated and maybe one of the trends that we see going forward. Very quickly, uh, just to end our show, uh, we are, you know, still in the midway process of this American presidential election in terms of where the votes are. We still don't have a defined president uh, selected. The votes are still being counted. So we didn't want to address any of that in the show with Danny. We've got a couple guests coming up in the next week or two uh, to talk about whether it's a Biden presidency or a Trump presidency, what will be going forward for U.S. policy in Africa and, of course, how it fits the Chinese. Uh, I'm already starting to write about this in our daily newsletter. So if you want to start thinking about what American policy should be and how to uh, guide the State Department, the Commerce Department, the DFC, all the different American agencies to evolve their policies towards Africa vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese, then we hope that you will take some time and subscribe to our daily email newsletter. It's only $3 for three months to try it out. Get it for 90 days. If you're not happy, you can walk away. No problem. No hard feelings. But we just really want you to try it out. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. And again, that's $3 for three months. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, for Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Thank you.